Welcome to episode four of Once Upon a Lifetime. Welcome back. If you have not already listened to episodes one, two, and three, we suggest you go back and listen to those. And our last episode, just to recap briefly, we covered up through Audrey Hepburn's work in Sabrina, War and Peace, and Funny Face. That is where we got to in her career. In her domestic life, she is currently married to Mel Ferrer and has just suffered her first miscarriage which has really devastated her. So her next two movies are Love in the Afternoon with Gary Cooper and then Mayerling, which I believe is another Mel movie. Oh, that's why I don't know it. Right. So (laughs) either way, not successful either one. War and Peace is not terribly successful. They spent an outrageous amount of money to make it. And it did not. It did not do what it was supposed to do at all. So she's tired. She's here. She is. She's again had this huge stint of work. She's exhausted. She wants a baby. So she starts turning down all invitations, requests, and everyone is kind of wondering if her career is just done. Um, And then in 1957, she gets asked to be in the nun's story. And she says it changed her life. Thumbnail sketch of this movie. Audrey plays the main character. She's a nun. She ends up being able to go to the Congo. And there's this question of obedience. There's trouble between the order letting her do what she feels like she needs to do to serve the people in Africa. Okay, so I'm not gonna say anymore. It's based on a true story. This woman, Marie Louise, was the actual nun in the nun story. And everyone wanted to be respectful. So they sent the whole cast, anyone who had any speaking roles, to live with nuns for three months in France in order to kind of get an idea of the life. Yeah, at this point, she's a little worried about the climate because she wants to have a baby going to Africa rough on the body, her body's not strong, you know, she's just kind of concerned. And I watched the movie, Audrey's wonderful, but I was disappointed because it's not that they're disrespectful to nuns or something, it's just that they seem to have missed the whole point of being a nun. It's like they don't understand that these women love God. They don't seem to understand that. They seem to think it was just a matter of like being good and serving others. Like willing yourself to holiness. Yes, almost like um, Peace Corps or social justice warriors. Yeah, I thought this. And then the first thing I googled the movie and the first thing that came up was a, a letter that one of the nuns who had been consulted on the movie wrote to Zinneman, the director, after the movie had been made. And she says, at times it looks like living in barracks and everything seems directed at personal perfection rather than the love of God. Sister Luke and the other nuns give the impression of living under constant restraint. They quench everything that is just simply human, and they seem to live through formalities and routines, especially in the Congo. They have hardly any friendly relations. This is sometimes a little true of the religious life, but this is totally false as to the whole of the life. So I felt kind of vindicated in my general impression, like, whoa, I don't know any nuns like that who just think it's all about them and being perfect. Right. Like, oh, I, I will be perfect. I will be perfect. Yeah. You know, like, what? I, I've never met a nun like that. And I know some nuns. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know some. <laughs> I know a few nuns. I'm not like that. How did it do? Did people like it? What was the response? Or was it, eh? I think it was medium. I, I You know, it was not a blockbuster. Okay. It wasn't a crowd pleaser. It was more of an artistic film. 
Like, it just seems like right. a narrow focus for a movie of hers. And it's just so different. And her performance is great. If you're really an Audrey fan, I would definitely watch it because it does show a totally different Audrey Hepburn. It is not, it's not funny, funny face. face. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know. I, I guess the direction in this movie was also extraordinary. The way that they, the lighting and the, the production, they, they really brought out a lot in Audrey that she previously has not been able to explore in her acting. So there is that. Absolutely. But mm-hmm. there's the execution, I think, is really excellent. Right. I do feel as if this proves that she is not just Audrey herself. Right. In this a Givenchy gown. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this was really hard, actually, to act expressively in a habit because it hides so much of your face. And she really had to work at being expressive without looking comical. There's a lot of subtlety in her acting that she doesn't need to use usually. So so the only little tidbit I have on the nun's story is that Audrey had two requests. She's not much of a diva, but these are the two things that she wanted. She wanted the quarantine laws to be lifted for her dog, Mr. Famous. I am a fan of Mr. Famous. He's a Yorkshire Terrier. Audrey made those little lap dogs a trend. Yorkies are a thing because of Audrey. I'm partial to him. So Mr. Famous is just adorbs. And so she wanted him with her. Yes, he got to cut through some red tape. Second thing Audrey wants is a bidet. That's right. Hmm. The French fanny washer. (laughs) (laughs) The next thing she does is that Green Mansions movie. Directed by Mel. Directed by Mel. Okay. Womp womp. Womp womp. <laughs> yeah. All right. The Green Mansions movie, not a hit, not really interesting, except there's a little a little fawn, a little baby deer is in this movie. <gasps> it becomes her pet, doesn't it? It does. I remember reading yes. about that little deer. She took it home. She took it shopping to the grocery store. You can see there's little photos of Audrey choosing her groceries and there's a little deer next to her. It's the most adorable thing. So she has Mr. Famous and she has the deer. And the void she's experiencing, she's trying to fill with Mr. Famous, the Yorkie, and the deer. It doesn't work. She actually gets pregnant again. Yay! And the only problem is she's supposed to be shooting this movie called The Unforgiven, which the director actually says, I've made lots of movies that I don't like, but The Unforgiven is the only movie that I actually hate. So it doesn't go well. She's seriously miscast. As Imagine Audrey Hepburn as a Native American. What? It's basically a Western. <laughs> and she plays a Native American? Yeah. It Ooh. is just way off. Like, she she can't pull her voice. Like, she can't pull that off. That's weird. This is very miscast. The real tragedy of the Unforgiven thing isn't how bad it is or how miscast she is. It's that while shooting, she has to learn how to ride a horse. And while she's riding horseback, she actually gets thrown from the horse, which is named Diablo, and she lands on her back. And John Huston, the director, says he feels responsible for it, and Mel certainly tried to hold him responsible. Even though the horse had been a good horse up to this point, it just had a moment. Huston says, her fall was on my conscience. So she has actually broken four vertebrae in her back from this fall. And Marie-Louise Herbay who is the original Sister Luke from The Nun Story, flies down from California and is her nurse for three weeks. Because she is a nurse. The nuns in The Nun Story are nurses, and she is an actual nurse in real life. So she comes down, and after three weeks, she's actually back to shooting and even riding Diablo again, which just boggles my mind. How do you break three vertebrae and then ride horses? She loses the baby Mm. as a result of the accident. (sighs) So this is miscarriage number two. 
super traumatizing. And it is here where you really, really see a change in her attitude about like if she is pregnant, man, she practically puts herself on bed rest, you know? <laughs> She's just like, no, I will take no chances. No chances at all. So she almost immediately gets pregnant again. Pregnancy number three. She cancels this movie that she had agreed to make with Alfred Hitchcock. And this is a big deal to make a movie with Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, he's a big deal at this point. But it's not 100% clear why she canceled. There are two reasons. One, she was pregnant and into not risk anything. Two, there's apparently a really violent rape slash strangling scene, which she found abhorrent. So she had agreed to do a movie with him. When she got the script, this was in it. And she said, I'm just not doing that. So this is where Audrey makes her only enemy. Alfred Hitchcock dislikes her from here on out. (laughs) But hey, I think either reason is not a bad reason to make your first enemy. So not only at this point is she not working herself, but she also chooses not for the first time in their marriage to accompany Mel while he's working. Before, had she not been doing her own project, she would accompany Mel to his so they could be together. So this is a real change in attitude about her marriage and about her work. She stays in Switzerland. They're renting a chalet there. She's taking daily walks. She's reading. She's eating. And sometime during this period is when she learns that her father, who she hasn't heard from all these years, hasn't even heard about, like knows nothing about him. He's alive. He's in Dublin. So she's reunited with him at this point. Mel actually works it out. Yeah, he traces him through the Red Cross, finds his address. And it's a real shock to Audrey because Ella had told her that he had died a few years ago. Ella. So what possessed Mel to do this? What's his motivation here? I think he knew she wanted to know where her father was. Pretty much anyone who's seen one interview with Audrey knows that the abandonment of her father is this sort of foundation like stone. defining moment. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, he's got to know it, right? Like, we all know it. Yeah. Um, She talks about it in all the interviews, like, this is no secret. Right. And I think when you're pregnant, too, you start thinking about your parents. And maybe he saw something of that. I think so, yeah. This is maybe one of the more decent things Mel tries to do for her. I'm not sure it works out so well, sadly. (laughs) But maybe he was trying, right? Can we give him, can we throw him a bone, Christina? I I throw Mel a bone (laughs) One small, tiny bone. (laughs) It took some initiative. And I think that Mel was really trying to do the right thing here. He was trying to maybe help Audrey heal a certain part of her life. And he saw a way in which she could be helpful. And he did. But the meeting itself is not great. They agree to meet Audrey's father in the foyer of a Dublin hotel. Not in a home. Not even in a pub. Yeah, not even over good food. No, no. You're just, it just seems so cold. And he turns out to be kind of incapable of a real relationship. At this point, I think Audrey, for the first time, realizes that all these years, she felt that there was something missing with her relationship with her father, that if only she could have him, everything would have been better somehow. And when she meets him as an adult and spends that time with him, she realizes she has missed very little, if anything at all, that he just didn't have that to give, was emotionally distant, and that's just incapable. Who he was. So... They do maintain a shallow, friendly relationship, but she sends him and his wife monthly checks after that and regular little notes. Like, actually, some of the reflections we have on her life are because of the letters she wrote to him. So she did her part. Now, on July 17th, 1960, she gives birth to a healthy baby boy. Yay! (laughs) I know, it's so good. Because you're just like, you poor, poor woman. All you wanted was a baby and you have one now. 
Exactly. And she actually says about that, on a brilliant Sunday after a rainstorm, our strong, well-made son was born. Like all new mothers, I couldn't believe he was really for me and that I could keep him. I wanted lots of babies. That's been a theme in my life. I'm sure it's wonderful if you're 18, but if you wait years, the joy is impossible to describe. My miscarriages were more painful to me than anything, ever, including my parents' divorce and the disappearance of my father. From the time I had Sean, I hung on to my marriage because of him, and more and more I began to resent the time I spent away from him on location. That was always the real me. The movies were fairy tales. Mm. I love that. Yeah. So at, at the christening of Sean, both Audrey and Sean, of course they wore Givenchy. And she was a moderately strict mother. She wasn't overly protective, but she was very watchful. So, you know, little rules. Sean was allowed only half an hour of TV every day and one Coca-Cola a week. So <laughs> Audrey was there making sure everything was done and not palming it off to other people. She was really on deck as a parent. She's a neat mom. She tries very hard to be really involved. She cooks, she gardens, she's she's really domestic. She is. I think she's... Like, she's finally got it. <laughs> she's, she's not just, in a random hotel room putting up pictures. She's, like, got a home with a kid. Yeah. She's really doing it. She's really... This is really what she wants. You know, like she says, the movies are fairy tales. And almost, I wonder if her success in the world came so easy. Honestly. I mean, mm. she got discovered. Right. Like, she worked to pay bills doing a thing she thought she could do, which was dance. And then a little bit of acting. And then, bam, she gets discovered... And all of a sudden, she's getting paid insane amounts of money to do very little work, relatively speaking. And it gives her this, oh, I don't know, maybe mental freedom to been there, done that with the whole career thing. I'm just going to pour myself into these domestic responsibilities I have. And this is what I've always actually wanted. And it's probably much more fulfilling. <laughs> it you seems know. like it. Yeah. Yeah. She seems very much to have it kind of clear in her own mind what is really important. Having said that, it was not many months later that she was already doing her next film. She had Sean close by, but she, when we think of the iconic Audrey Hepburn image, you think of that breakfast at Tiffany's Audrey with the big dark glasses and that slim black dress. And you cannot imagine this is a postpartum situation for anyone. <laughs> now, I didn't realize that. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't it make okay. you feel even more yeah, inadequate? I'm like, womp, womp. <laughs> How many months postpartum do we do we dare tell? I'm I'm counting my postpartum situation in years. Audrey herself is just it's isn't it five or six months? It's not it's not long. long. Actresses were very, very diligent. They are now, but especially then too, about getting back into trim for a role. Yeah. But here's the thing, she just looked excellent. I mean, yeah, if she started started out at like 100 pounds, I mean, what? She's going to probably lose that pretty quickly. I will say some people just are like that. Mm -hmm. We have to accept it and move on. Yes. Yes. You know what? I'm okay with Audrey Hepburn looking like that pregnant. I'm not so okay with like my next door neighbor looking like that. (laughs) (laughs) Audrey Hepburn's love. Exactly. She does have Sean. She's already slated to do this Truman Capote book turned to movie. She's going to play Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. This is the movie I think most people associate with her. And she hated doing it. She hated it. 
I mean, this is like that new mom first separation. You know, I hate daycare. Not that she had daycare. She had she had Mel with her and the nanny. So she did, it's not like, oh, I'm going to leave Switzerland and leave my baby in Switzerland and go to Hollywood to shoot something. No, 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 no. The whole entourage came and Sean was there. <laughs> and many more than 55 pieces of luggage, probably. Oh, baby gear you multiplies <laughs> your luggage load. It's just the truth. They're shitting in New York. Okay. Yeah. And yes. she's just, she's just miserable. I mean, she is chain smoking. Like if she wasn't smoking during the pregnancy. I, I found a picture where she was. My mom did it through mine. So not a shocker. Anyway, here she is. She is just, she's a wreck. She's just kind of a mental wreck. So that just speaks to her genuine innate ability to, I don't know exactly what, compartmentalize or to act. act. To act. <laughs> this is yeah. the definition of acting. This is. She is not a happy camper. She's really, really having a hard time. And I think most most new moms probably get that, that to leave the baby for the first time, even for good reasons, are, are hard. I think she had a really hard time justifying doing anything but being Sean's mom at this point. She's really struggling with that whole idea. She fought for this baby. She had all these miscarriages beforehand, and she so desperately wanted him. And then there's definite outside pressure from Mel to continue producing work to to kind of be the best actress she can be in. It's a real struggle. She's really unhappy during the shooting. And also unhappy is Truman Capote, author of Breakfast at Tiffany's, the book. Oh, Truman. Oh, Truman. So Truman Capote was just such an interesting character. He was actually a childhood friend of Harper Lee. And I've always said that I would love if, if they had the same English teacher, I would have loved to have met her. Mm-hmm. But he, he wrote the original novella Breakfast at Tiffany's in, in a style that I think is less bubbly. I mean, it's still, it's a bit of a bittersweet story, but, but the novel itself is far grittier than the actual movie. And he definitely wanted Marilyn. He was friendly with Marilyn Monroe and he, kind of saw her as maybe being the better choice for this movie. He wasn't and, and too why, thrilled. If you haven't seen Breakfast at Tiffany's, which actually I had not before I started doing this research. I don't know how I missed it growing up, kind of do. The basis of the plot, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk about why does Holly Golightly insist on getting $50 to go to the powder room from her gentleman friends? My children asked me the question before I turned the movie off. I was like, oh, we're going to watch this movie that's so famous. And like, you know, at some point I was like, and not going to watch this. I have fewer (laughs) issues with Audrey's character, with Holly getting money to go to the bathroom than I do with Mickey Rooney being cast in this movie. Oh, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney. He is playing her Japanese neighbor and it's it is horrifying. <laughs> it really is. It's like, horrifying. So almost like you can't watch it now without feeling like you're being racist. Yeah. Just, just by watching having, it. Just yeah, by totally. your eyes seeing it, you're like, I am sinning against humanity <laughs> watching <laughs> this movie in many it ways. It was uncomfortable. <laughs> and basically everybody hated this except for Mickey Rooney. He, he thought he was pretty excellent. Jeez. But it was awful. So, yeah. So, there's there's some problems. Like, they had a hard time kind of sanitizing this movie for the general public. In the book, Holly Golightly is a 
predatory hooker, possibly bisexual, a fierce individualist. Does that fit the Audrey Hepburn image? I, I wouldn't sit there and say, you know who we really should drop into this role? Like, I could see... Audrey Hepburn. Right. You know, branding was not such a thing that it is now, except it was. Back then, certain actresses had personas, public right. personas, that they protected. And Audrey had a lot to do with shaping the Holly Golightly of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Just partly by who she was, and then a few things that she insisted upon. When the executives insisted that she be cast as Holly Golightly, it was just was not in the cards to be kind of as out there. So Truman Capote was very unhappy with the choice. An interesting fact is that there was sex happening in movies, but usually it was the bad girls having it, or people were punished for it, you know, like extramarital relationships you, you didn't have your good girl protagonist having a good time yeah i mean they time. tried to downplay they tried to kind of sneak it in but as you just mentioned it's it's not that sneaky you know what you know what's really happening and he's a kept man and the whole thing is just point is she gets through the movie and now every college dorm room in the world has that image of her hanging everyone everywhere has that Holly Golightly image. And she does pull off Pretty Woman. She does pull off this innocent hooker. Kooky. 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 She pulls off Kooky. She does it. Well, it's interesting because the character of Holly is just really the opposite of Audrey. Holly's been living in her apartment for over a year and has not unpacked. She's just living out of her suitcases strewn across the floor. And, you know, our Audrey takes her little suitcases and just even for days, weeks, months at a time, makes house. It's just it's just the antithesis of, of who Audrey is, and yet she still manages to infuse this role with some kind of vulnerability. I guess that's what she brought to the role. In the book, it's kind of harder to see. Truman's Holly's more self-centered. I wonder if she felt that disconnect. Here she is acting this role that's completely the opposite of who she is as a person. Yeah, she did not like the character. Yeah. She did not know how to make this fit with her own branding, so to speak. And also... She had a serious preoccupation, starting from now, about Sean getting kidnapped. Oh. And I'm not sure why, and I would like to do some more research into why. Did you become super paranoid, though, after you had kids? I, I remember, like, it was the minute Kaylee was born, feeling like everywhere I looked, there was, like, potential dangers that I had never paid any attention to. It, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, she has, and of course, she's got a lot of money, so maybe she sees herself as a target. I, You know, I'm not sure what was happening were there other celebrities who had children um, kidnapped at this point? You know, I don't know where the idea is coming from, but she is really, really concerned about it. She's just a mess. By the end of the shoot, she's a wreck. She's just an emotional wreck. She ends up taking a year off. Wow. And all she does is, like, cook pasta for the family and garden and take care of Sean. I mean, she's just, like... She goes in, to her happy place. She does. <laughs> Give me some carbs and a garden and my child. I tell you what, I get this woman. Yeah. She's like my soul sister. <laughs> Pasta and a garden and a baby. I get that. Like, just let me retreat. Let me just do my thing that feeds her soul. So at some point, she ends up signing on to do it. I just don't even know how this happens. But it's, a, it's a bad idea. 1962. She does Paris when it sizzles. First of all, it's a flop. But all I really want to say about this in researching what was going on during it, Bill Holden is back. It's been 10 years or so, and here they are again. He's still holding the torch for Audrey. The man cannot let her go. He's on the hook in a big bad way. 
and he's so nervous about working with Audrey again. All he, remember, he's he's her first flame back in Sabrina. He's the one who had the vasectomy and that open marriage, and it was just all okay. That's Bill Holden. And well, he's when back. Bill Holden is nervous. He drinks. Oh dear. That so he bad. already drinks. And he drinks more when he's nervous. And he, the man, is just like a bundle of nerves trying to work with Audrey again. He loves her still. So he basically drinks himself into stupors and cannot work several times during the shooting. He ends up going three separate times to rehab to dry out. During the shooting, he howls like a dog under her window, tries to <laughs> climb up the wall to her window and falls, but miraculously walks away, probably because his muscles were rubber. Because he was intoxicated. The film, shockingly, is not a success. Shocking. I want a film of this film being made. <laughs> oh, just because it would probably be a lot more sizzling than the first Paris when it sizzled. <laughs> so true. This I don't movie actually- was really hard for her, too, in, in the sense that she's starting to have problems in her own marriage. And you can see that she is very thin. Very, very thin in this movie. Just probably from the stress and dealing with Bill howling like a dog and Mel doing who knows what. And There are rumors that Mel is with a Spanish duchess while Audrey is in Paris doing this film. So he rushes back to secure their marriage and they continue. So this is kind of the beginning of the end. They start kind of unraveling. So that was 1962. In 1963, she's in, and this is my favorite, Audrey. She's in My Fair Lady. It's directed by Jack Warner. So Jack Warner would not have Julie Andrews, even though Julie Andrews played Eliza Doolittle on Broadway and made the role. And we now know who Julie Andrews is. But at the time, she was brand new on the scene, not famous. She had done very well as Eliza, but that didn't necessarily transfer to Hollywood. Jack Warner says he will not have Julie Andrews. And he offered it to Audrey, and she said, no, no, Julie Andrews deserves this role. Cary Grant refused the Henry Higgins role opposite Eliza because Rex Harrison, who had played it on Broadway, he said no Rex Harrison. So anyway, Jack Warner, the director, is kind of like, all right, I'll take one big name as one star, and then I'll take the Broadway star who made the role, Rex Harrison, as the co-star. It was like a compromise. And Jack Warner offered Eliza like a third person. And Audrey said, well, if you're not going to give it to Julie Andrews, yes, I will take it. Audrey ended up earning nearly unprecedented $1 million to play Eliza. It's also kind of the last hurrah of the Hollywood musical. There's not a whole lot of Hollywood musicals that come out after this. So it's kind of fun to watch. And, you know, you have um, The King and I at this time. You have a whole bunch of these movies that are coming out about the same time, but then not so many afterwards. The whole movie is about this girl with a Cockney accent that gets turned into kind of a high-level aristocrat um, via her accent. It's all about linguistic, kind of like the King's speech, but, you know, for accents. The costuming for this movie, it's, it's a really big deal. The dresses are amazing, but the beginning of the movie... A lot of effort is put into making Audrey Hepburn look terrible, which we usually don't get to see. Took hours to just make her look appealingly filthy. Dirt under the nails. They would put Fuller's Earth in her hair, make it nice and kind of dingy looking. And she hated it. And she made sure that Mel was not going to see her like this. So she would just scrub, scrub, scrub before she'd go home. And during the day that she'd be wearing this, she would douse herself in her favorite perfume. Because she said it made her feel at least a little bit of a lady. <laughs> Totally. Like, she couldn't handle it. She's like, all right, I'm doing this, but 
It's the worst ever. Yeah. At least I've got to have my perfume with me. So there's a whole thing with singing. Because it's a musical, they hire her and they tell her, you will probably be doing the singing. And she works her rear end off. She's working with voice trainers. She's working with dialecticians. She's just trying so hard to master this Cockney accent. And she sings all the songs. She records them. And she thinks they're getting used. The producers don't think she has a good enough voice. They hire Marnie Nixon. I just think it's worth a Google. Because if you haven't heard about her, she's everywhere. And you don't even know it. It's not until later on that they finally break the news no, your voice will not be used. And this is the only time she storms off stage. She doesn't officially quit, but she just leaves. She kind of plays the diva card. Not that she she's not a diva. She's very, very hurt. But she storms off stage. And I know that the cast were also really upset that they didn't use her voice. They all felt a lot of loyalty to her. And her voice was fine. It was fine. You can hear, if you look up on YouTube, you can actually hear her voice on a few cuts of... of the songs and it's nice and it sounds like her it's not unpleasant it's perfectly good marnie nixon at this point also hired to do the king and i she's the voice in the king and i she's the voice in west side story she's maria oh my goodness they've dubbed marnie nixon's voice in a fair to remember she's the voice of a whole bunch of actresses wow and at the time it was pretty secret they didn't really tell anybody marnie nixon had to sign these non-disclosure agreements she wasn't going to you know get credit for these songs so my fair lady ends up being kind of the swan song of this traditional hollywood musical it gets 12 oscar nominations and audrey receives Zero. It's almost certainly because the Academy would have known it was not her voice. So even though it wasn't public knowledge, they couldn't really nominate her for a musical where she wasn't singing. And it's just sad. She ends up presenting the award to the best actor, Rex Harrison, her co-star in My Fair Lady, who gets the best actor award. And because somebody got sick, they ask her to present it. It's like, let's pour salt in your wounds. Totally. It's just the worst. Then, you know who does get the Best Actress Award that year? Julie Andrews. Yeah. For (laughs) Mary Poppins. The same year that Audrey doesn't even get nominated for Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. And when Julie Andrews goes up to receive her Best Actress Award, her first thank you is to Jack Warner the director of My Fair Lady. She says, I would just like to thank Jack Warner. And of course, everybody in the audience knows exactly what happened in the whole Uh. debacle and the whole ridiculousness of her not getting cast in a role was fantastic. And you can also Google Julie Andrews as Eliza Doolittle, and you can actually hear her doing some of the songs. And it's great. I mean, she's fantastic. Audrey's great, too. And when you hear her her cuts instead of the Marnie Nixon cuts, you also think they're both great. They're, it's different. It's d- definitely different. Julie is a little more polished um, in the singing. You know, that's her thing. But, but they're both wonderful. And so, anyway, what a shame. Just kind of a shame all around. Right. But we have Mary Poppins and we have My Fair Lady, and they're both great. So comes out in the wash. That is where we're going to leave off for this episode. But please join us next time. We are going to be discussing Audrey's desperate struggle to save her marriage. Thanks again 